Hey, I'm Fiona. I'm Abigail. And welcome back to The Fly. Abigail, how was your weekend? It was great. It was actually parents' weekend, although my parents did not come out all the way out. I was able to have dinner with my roommate's parents, which was really nice. How about you? Super fun. I went home this weekend to escape the craziness of parents' weekend here, and it was very relaxing. But before we left, we had a great interview with Gabe Fleischer. Gabe is the author of Wake Up to Politics, which is a daily political newsletter, and he also happens to be a senior here at Georgetown University. We had a great conversation with him. Let's fly right into the interview. joining us on the fly. We are so excited to chat with you today. I'm Fiona. I'm Abigail. And I'm Gabe. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, super excited. So to start off with, tell us about how you started your political newsletter, Wake Up to Politics. Yeah, for sure. So I, I first really got interested in politics during the 2008 elections. Um, I so was, how old were you then? I was about, about six years old. Okay. Six or seven years old. Um, you know, as we're kind of heating up into right now, I think you know, just during campaign season, you know, politics kind of all around us, campaign ads, TV... TV ads, you know, um, yard signs, stuff like that, and I just really got intrigued by the whole thing. And I first, that's when I first started like really paying attention to politics and reading about it. And and um and I first read the newsletter in two thousand eleven. I was about nine years old, and I just thought, hey, you know, I'll, I'll try my hand at you know, um, writing about politics, see what that's like. And I started started the newsletter with one subscriber, my mom. Um and uh, now so that's, that was about twelve or something years ago, and now about fifty thousand subscribers today. Wow, that's awesome. What piece of of his history or uh, like a political tchotchka in your room, because I know you have a, a great collection, is the most important to you um, or special or, or fun? Interesting. I don't know. I, I, well, I will say... Because that's where you started the podcast or for the, the newsletter from your room. That right? is true. Yeah. I started from my bedroom for many years. I do yeah, I have a lot of like yard signs in my room. I have a lot of random stuff in my room. That is true. I, I will say I just recently this summer... I, I was able to cover um, the Camp David summit um, that President Biden held with the leaders of Japan and South Korea. And I got like, and it was, it was like the craziest thing. There was this like tiny little gift shop at Camp David and the reporters absolutely like mobbed it. Like I saw reporters <laughs> spending hundreds of dollars. I'm not kidding. At the Camp David gift shop. It was kind of a sad yeah. display. I did not spend that much money, but I did get How much did you a spend? little, I, I will not disclose, <laughs> but, but not, it was not a ridiculous amount. I honestly don't remember how much, but it was not that much. But, um, but it, there was, people were going crazy. But I got a little replica of, like, the Camp David sign, and that's sitting on my desk here, here in, in Georgetown, my, in my apartment. And so I, I do like looking at that. It was, it, it, that was a cool experience to go to Camp David, so that's kind of a little fun. And tell us more about how you got involved with the Camp David Summit. What was that like? Are there any moments that stand out? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was credentialed to attend it as a reporter. Um, pretty much, you know, whenever the president does anything, the White House, you know, kind of alerts reporters a few days ahead of time, and they kind of send out, you know, lists where you can kind of RSVP as press or apply for credentials, never guaranteed them. Um, but I have a pretty good track record of usually being able to get them when I ask. And um, that seemed like a, a pretty interesting opportunity, not only to go to Camp David, which is obviously a site of a lot of history, but it was also the first time these three countries had gotten together for a trilateral summit. Um, so it felt like it could be an interesting story. And um, pretty much, yeah, I applied for credentials, and, you know, I, I, was, I received them. And then got on a bus with all these other reporters. We left from the right house and went to Camp David. And it, it was very interesting. Um, didn't get to see much. You know, it's a huge, It's a pretty big campground, and a lot of it they don't really let. let they mm-hmm. don't really show you. But I, but I got to see a little bit of it, and, and got to see the summit site and the press conference. 
Um, and it, it was definitely a pretty interesting experience. Do you think the amount of time, I, I've heard that uh, different presidents spend varying amounts of time actually at Camp David. Do you think that says anything about their character? Um, I don't know about their character. I mean, you know, Biden does go home a lot and you know Biden lives very close by so he's in Delaware almost every weekend um which is something that sets him apart from a lot of other presidents most presidents um spend a lot more time at the White House he goes home a lot um and sometimes to Camp David as well you know oftentimes if there is some kind of situation he's monitoring um he'll go to Camp David instead of Wilmington but he's almost never in the White House on the weekends that's not always the case again when there's some sort of situation or something a reason he needs to be in DC but it's fairly rare that he's here. That's certainly been the case for the first few years of his presidency. So I'd say that, you know, I think that is something that, um, he's just interesting. It does set him apart. Yeah. D- different presidents have done different things. Trump almost never went to Camp David, but, you know, spent a lot of time at Mar-a-Lago. Um, not as much time as Biden spent in Wilmington, but it's, it's farther. Um, but, but, you know, all the presidents, y- you, I think, you know, you kind of reserve Camp David for certain things. Trump would bring kind of lawmakers there. That something seen as a big honor. Biden, obviously, this was his first Camp David summit, but obviously, historically, it's a place you bring foreign leaders. Um, kind of almost seen, you know, a White House invitation is very highly sought after for a lot of foreign leaders, but a Camp David invitation is almost even above that, just mm-hmm. because it's even rarer. And obviously, there's kind of the pedigree, the history of Camp David Accords. Um, you know, that's kind of seen in the international community as like even a step above. So I think in that sense, for Biden to invite leaders of Japan and South Korea there, that was kind of his way of telling them like that this meeting's incredibly important to me. And tell us about the behind the scenes of covering the Camp David summit. You said you went on a bus with a bunch of journalists. What was that like interacting with all of these other journalists? Yeah, I, I'm trying to remember, I don't remember exactly how many of us there was, but there's there two kind of buses. Um, I, showed, I mean, you had to pay, you know, though, anytime the president travels and reporters go with them, you it's through the White House um, travel agency, you know, they coordinate those logistics. And so I don't remember how much it was, but you, you have to pay some amount of money to kind of cover the, the travel. Um, yeah, it was two big buses. I, you know, a fair amount of the White House reporters know me and, and I know them and I certainly chat with them a little bit, but, you know, it wasn't like, I mean, we were like singing songs or anything, the camp <laughs> bus or anything like that. But, um, but it, it was fairly... Um, we kind of all, all sat in our seats and, and there's certainly a little bit of chit chat, but we kind of all, all went and um, they kind of corralled us. You know, there's a huge, usually at events like that, you know, debates or summits or things like that. There's something called the press filing center. That's where reporters go to file their stories and we're just where they're told to wait if you're waiting for things, which a lot of a reporter's job is just waiting for things. And so um, there was, I believe it was like the camp gym was converted into the press filing center. We were there um, and then we were taking by golf cart to the actual side of the press conference. Wow, very cool. Um, and if you had any advice for either young journalists like ourselves, I mean, that's part of uh, the coolness of talking to you right now is um, to get some insight into that. For example, how do you get the credentials? How do you, how do you talk about building that, that career? Yeah, I mean, my, my first piece of, piece of advice for your journalists is always, you know, just start something. Um, and that's kind of what you guys have done. You know, you guys have a podcast. You know, it's never, it's not, it's never been easier than it is right now to kind of just, you know, kind of make a name for yourself and kind of get a platform, whether that's podcasting or newslettering, um, you know, or blogging, whatever it is, or just, you know, even on social media, Instagram, TikTok, whatever it is, there's so many platforms now that make it so easy um, for young people with, you know, you don't even need that much kind of experience, um, you know, yet you can kind of just start something and then just, just work at it. And I think you know, it's important to stay consistent. 
Um, I think, you know, readers and audiences notice that, but then also to your point about kind of credential, credentialing, you know, officials notice that, you know, if you're requesting interviews, requesting credentials, like, you know, they'll look, oh, is this just some one-off thing? Or like, is this something that, you know, this person's actually consistently doing? I think consistency is important. Um, you're just build, building the trust. You know, I think it's important, um, you know, if you want other people to take your work seriously, you have to too. Um, and so, yeah, I think you just, you do it consistently. You do it in a way that kind of builds trust. Listen to feedback from, from your audience. I think, you know, I certainly, I, I still, you know, certainly uh, yeah, far away is imperfect, but obviously, but I think, you know, I've, I hope I've improved a lot over the years, been doing this a long time. And you just, you kind of have to be really kind of humble and just listen to people um, when, when they give advice and feedback and hopefully, you know, whatever product it is, whatever you do decide to start will kind of evolve and grow over time. Um, don't be afraid to experiment, try different things, you know, try different formats, you know, that, you know, it, it's, again, it's just so easy to go into any different mode or different different thing. But, but I think if, if you keep working at something and keep trying to build it, it is possible. You know, I'm not the only one um, who's done something like this. And, and then, you know, uh, eventually you can kind of go, go to whatever, you know, official or whoever you want, you want to interview, you want access to an event or something. So, you know, I've done this, this and this, I've covered this and this, you know, you have to do the work and you have to be serious about it. But, you know, I think over time, if you, know, especially, you know, something like the White House, like if you're showing up day in, day out, you know, if, if they, if they see you a lot, you know, then, you know, officials start to recognize you, then they want to call on you for questions, same thing at the Capitol. Then they're like, oh, you know, this person's not just parachuting in, they're actually someone that, you know, I recognize, you know, is coming to these press conferences a lot or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and, and that's how you kind of get called on for a question and then maybe get an interview and, you know, kind of grow some there. So, I mean, don't expect anything like that, you know, day one, but, but if you keep kind of trying and kind of keep your head down and keep doing the work. Um, you know, it, it is more possible now than ever to really kind of build a big audience and, and kind of get, you know, your, your voice out there. Definitely more. It's much easier now than ever, as you mentioned. And one thing that you've certainly been covering this week and has been kind of all the talk with um, U.S. politics is everything going on in the House right now, given that there is no speaker. So give us background about what's going on and why the GOP is unable to select a speaker. Yeah, I mean, so the background, I mean, you could start at a lot of different points, but I guess, you know, for time's sake, you know, really starts back in January. I'm sure a lot of people remember, you know, the 15 ballots that Kevin McCarthy had to go through mm -hmm. at the beginning of this Congress to become Speaker of the House. Um, you know, Kevin McCarthy is someone who has been in Republican leadership a long time, um, knows a lot of these members very well, but, you know, for a lot of um, your members and kind of the, the I, mean, I guess first important to note, he has a very small, you know, four seat majority. So House Republicans in 2022 were expecting to win kind of this blowout majority ended up being very tight. And so that's important context. So when you have that, almost any few members can kind of swing any vote and then also any kind of decisions on leadership. And so that was the case back in January, as people probably remember, there was kind of a very small group. Um, you know, it fluctuated during votes at the kind of the high watermark point, about 20 Republicans, um, but kind of it dwindled even smaller eventually, who just said no to McCarthy, never McCarthy. Eventually, he was able to win them over, um, made a whole deal of concessions that won them over. But it kind of just showed from the start, from the beginning of this Congress, how fragile that majority was, how many different factions there were, and how little um, kind of support, or, or how kind of shallow McCarthy's support was, and how fragile it was. And obviously, so that kind of, and that kind of went on for about nine months, and was kind of uncomfortable, but, you know, fairly workable fashion. You know, there was a debt ceiling bill, which McCarthy averted by working with Democrats, then a government shutdown, which he averted by working with Democrats. And that was finally when it was enough for, again, those kind of an even smaller kind of group of, of those same rebels, eight Republicans, who then voted for the first time in history, um, what's called a motion to vacate, 
Um, and that was the first successful one we've ever seen where the House kind of throws out um, the Speaker in the middle of a term. And so now that was, you know, we're speaking now on, fri on Friday. That was about, you know, nine days ago and no Speaker. And so, you know, obviously they had McCarthy. He's out. Then the next person in line was Steve Scalise. A few days ago, he was nominated by the House Republicans um, to kind of fill his shoes. Um, and then so how it works, you, know, you get nominated by the party, but then you have to win. So you only need a majority of House Republicans to be nominated. But then to win the speakership, you need a majority of the whole House, which is 217, which is going to be all but four um, members of the Republican conference. It was pretty became pretty clear pretty fast. Steve Scalise did not have that kind of support. So done with McCarthy, then done with Scalise. Now, as we're speaking, um, Republicans are trying to, for a third time this Congress, pick another speaker nominee. Candidates are Jim Jordan and Austin Scott. Um, most likely Jim Jordan is going to win that nomination, but he faces the same issue that McCarthy mm -hmm. and Scalise did before him, which it's deeply unclear that he has 217 votes on the floor. And so that's kind of, you know, that's kind of where we are right now, which is um, Republicans are kind of, you know, they're meeting once again behind closed doors to kind of find their nominee, but, but it's really unclear who is able to get not just a majority of House Republicans, but a majority of the whole House, that 217 number that so far ha has kind of remained elusive for any of the possible contenders. Would you say it's more beneficial to whoever wants to become Speaker to pander more to the far right or to the moderates? Um, I mean, I think just going off of what we've seen in this Congress so far, the so like I said, you know, any group of four can basically derail anything in this House, but the group that has been much more willing to do that consistently have been the Conservatives. Um, and that's kind of been the case at every juncture. Every time there's been a bill or a leadership vote, you know, whatever it's been, you know, when conservatives have kind of demanded kind of, you know, on different bills like the defense bill or different spending bills kind of loading up conservative priorities, moderates have occasionally kind of, you know, made a big deal like, oh, we're never going to go for that. We're never going to go for that. That would never fly in our districts. And then generally they end up voting for it. So just based off that history, it does seem more likely, say, that moderates would end up kind of dragging their feet, but eventually voting for a Jim Jordan, then conservatives voting for, you know, some moderate nominee. Um, doesn't mean moderates will end up voting for Jim Jordan, but just based off of who's been willing to kind of flex their power so far, that's kind of the dynamic. Um, but, you know, the reality is whoever is eventually a speaker is going to have to appeal to both. I mean, unless you have kind of the extraordinary situation where you have moderates teaming up with Democrats who also get a vote the speaker vote on the House floor, unless some sort of bipartisan coalition like that is forged. If it is a Republican speaker winning off Republican votes, they really, you know, the answer is they need buy-in from both. And it would need to be, and, and there are some, you know, someone like Patrick McHenry, who's the speaker of Tem right now, he's someone who has buy-in throughout the conference. Um, Tom Emmer is the House Majority Whip. He's kind of the rung below Scalise. He also has, um, you know, somewhat broad buy-in. So those people are there, but there's very few of them. Um, and really the answer is, you, you need you need moderates and conservatives because really any small group of either of those factions um, are enough to deny the speakership. And so as we're about to see, are moderates willing, if Jim Jordan is nominated, which you know we'll know very soon, um, will our moderates be willing to do the same thing that um, that conservatives did and kind of you know refuse the will of the conference and vote against them? You know we'll see. They they say they will right now, but they folded before. But you know I think for a lot of them, you know they've seen now twice conservatives kind of. Um, jettison their pick and so that's built up a lot of really kind of ill will and you know you know, a lot of villains why, why did they why did they get to defeat someone but we don't and so it, I think that certainly could happen too. Mm. 
Let's talk about Gen Z's perspective on this issue. How do you think this leadership crisis within the GOP will impact the younger generation, specifically their engagement or perspective on politics? I mean, I would be surprised if it does. I mean, I think as much as it, you know, it's certainly kind of the big political story of the moment, and it's important, you know, who leads the House of Representatives. It's not a small thing. But, you know, I think by the time we get to kind of election day 2024, I'd be surprised if anyone is paying that much attention, you know, um, to who got elected speaker. But what I will say is the reason that this matters is because, you know, the speaker sets the agenda on the floor and sets the direction of uh, of the House. And so, you know, I do think there are issues that, that are very important to young voters. Um, you know, abortion would be the biggest one where you saw Kevin McCarthy several times kind of fold to his right flank to kind of add into bills, you know, kind of anti-abortion measures, Mm -hmm. measures that would have shut down the federal government's ability to, you know, say, um, pay for troops who want abortions or other things like that. Um, So, you know, to the extent that, you know, the more conservative speaker you have, the more likely is there's kind of those conservative policy priorities that then might get tagged, the Republican Party might get tagged with, and specifically Republicans in kind of these kind of swing districts. Um, You know, if, if, a more conservative speaker forces them to take more conservative votes on issues that matter to young people like abortion. You know, I think that is one way that kind of indirectly this speakership race could kind of end up affecting the election just by dint of what lawmakers end up voting on and whether they end up kind of having to vote on more unpopular measures um, or you know, measures that are more unpopular. So the young voters you brought up and also just to kind of swing voters. Mm-hmm. So that's one way. But I think in general, you know, this is not the first time, you know, Congress, but more specifically House Republicans, have had kind of pretty bitter leadership fights. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any time when it's had that clear of an electoral impact. Generally, you know, even who the Speaker of the House is has a pretty low name ID. It's not something that I think voters or young voters are paying a whole lot of attention to. So while maybe this small issue um, isn't getting the attention that, as we just discussed, um, and to sway Gen Z, do you think the larger issue that this points to, which is a problem, maybe fundamental problem with the political party, the GOP, and to some extent the Democrats as well, do you think that uh, will impact or infect uh, the, the feeling of Gen Z towards being engaged? I mean, maybe. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, certainly it feeds into this narrative you know, of the Republican Party as dysfunctional, as kind of chaotic. You know, I think that, you know, certainly there there is a narrative there and this only, I mean, you know, we're going, you know, days without a speaker and that that can only feed into that. Um, but as you brought up, I mean, the truth is, you know, this, you know, I think it's because the Republicans are in the majority, you kind of see these divisions more starkly, but both parties have divisions. Um, and I think, frankly, you know, on both sides, it is generally the young people that, are kind of more associated with the kind of less establishment voices in each party that generally kind of cheer on these sorts of, you know, fights. On the Democratic side, it is young people are much more associated with the kind of AOC, Bernie Sanders, you know, kind of wing of the party. Same thing on the Republican side, where you see young voters are much more associated with the kind of Trump wing of the party, which is kind of loosely associated with the people causing the most trouble in the House right now. You know, it's a little bit complicated. It doesn't fall under kind of perfect, I mean, certainly not perfect Trump, not Trump lines. Um, it's certainly not that at all. But, you know, in general, I think there is an attitude of young voters are very suspicious of establishment, very, you know, distrustful of government and kind of very kind of distrustful of the status quo. So if anything, I think an argument could be made that this is fairly popular, at least within the young voters in each party, you know, kind of anything that kind of disrupts the status quo is fairly popular. 
So, I mean, I think that that's one angle to consider, which is, you know, it's generally, I mean, and that's been the case in Congress, you know, for decades now. I mean, the Democrats had a lot of these fights back in the 70s, and it was kind of the same thing between kind of young, up-and-coming House Democrats versus the kind of old bulls, you know, kind of people that had been there many decades. So there's a very familiar dynamic in politics where you kind of see old establishment figures kind of coalesce in power and then kind of younger, um, both voters and lawmakers whose bases are generally young voters, um, kind of nipping at their heels and, and trying to disrupt that. Speaking on that point, who are you excited to watch in the lead up to 2024 who are challenging, you know, Trump and Biden and these older figures? Um, I mean, Anyone in particular? I mean, I think, you know, at this moment that we're speaking, they're both, you know, highly, highly favored to win Absolutely. their party nominations. Yeah. So I don't know that there's anyone in particular that, I expect to have a huge impact. I mean, someone, you know, someone I interviewed a few weeks ago, um, who, who is, you know, on the younger side, at least, you know, in Washington is Dean Phillips of, of Minnesota. And he's, you know, he, I interviewed him over the summer when he was first kind of flirting with a primary challenge against Biden. He's now kind of talking about that again. Um, I think he's someone worth watching. I don't think he's, you know, someone that would have much of a shot, you know, toppling Biden or anything like that. But I think, he is worth watching only in that, you know, if you look at public opinion polling, you know, huge percentages of Democrats, you know, huge majorities, you know, 60, 70, 80 percent of Democrats don't want Joe Biden as their nominee again. Um, and so, but yet in Congress, there's really only one person, um, you know, so that you know, like kind of 80 percent of the voters, but like one percent of members of Congress who Democratic members of Congress who are kind of you know, sending that message of trying to get Biden to move aside. And it's Dean Phillips. So I think that's just an interesting story just in, um, I think you could say the courage that it takes. You know, he's just in the past few days, a primary challenger announced um, in his district because obviously, um, you know, in the party establishment, the president is very popular. And so someone from that establishment is now challenging him for kind of making noise about challenging Biden. So, so I think, it's, I think that's just kind of an interesting story in itself that there's so few Democratic members of Congress. There's such a gap between Democratic voters and kind of their leaders. And so he's an interesting example of someone who kind of stands apart from that and has been kind of willing to say, well, actually, you know, if the president is 80 years old and he's pretty unpopular and there's not much evidence that voters are kind of listening to his, you know, think that he's doing a good job in the economy, if his son, you know, has been indicted, you know, maybe we should be looking somewhere else. Um, so I find him interesting and, and he's definitely making a generational pitch. Um, I don't expect it to gain much traction or anything like that, but, but it was interesting speaking to him and it was interesting to kind of hear his case made. And I wrote about it in my newsletter and, um, you know, wrote, you know, th this is the case he's making also, you know, this is the polling and it, it's highly unlikely that, um, it'll go anywhere. Um, do you think that, or looking ahead, um, you seem a little bit pessimistic, but what are you most excited for? in as a journalist to track and watch the upcoming election? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say pessimistic. I mean, you know, I, you know as just, I have no stake. I, no, truly, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have no stake in the election. And, you know, I just think, uh, but, but I will say, I mean, it's, it's something I hear from my readers all the time. You know, it's like, how are we in an election again, four years later with these same two highly unpopular figures? Mm -hmm. um, and it is this just kind of quirk of how these kind of party processes work. And again, the fact that, the mood in the party leadership, at least on the Democratic side, on both sides, but kind of the, there's kind of the inverse situation on both sides, where the Democratic leadership are very excited about a candidate that their voters are not, and then the Republican voters are very excited about a candidate that their leadership is not. 
Um, and so there's just this huge disconnect on both sides between what voters want and what actually seems like happening. So, I mean, that's not pessimism or optimism. I, you know, that, that's just, to me, what's going on. In your and greatest the historical analysis, is there a time in history that resembles this moment that you can shed some light on? Um, I mean, I think, you know, Biden is, uh, uh, in terms of, like, two highly unpopular figures... I mean, I guess one thing that I guess worth noting just historically is it's a fairly modern innovation that voters have had any say in who the nominees are at all. You know, that's just the 1960s forward. So obviously, you know, we don't have that much public opinion polling then. But even the idea that voters would get any say is, you know, a fairly modern innovation. But but no, I mean, we're, we're in an era where politicians, you know, approval ratings kind of just across the board are a lot lower doesn't really matter who they are or what they do it seems they're kind of all treading in the same kind of like mid-40s kind of pool and and that's historically unique i mean it was the case in 2016 and 2020 and now 2024 as well but before that if you look back you know people like john mccain mitt romney Barack obama you know were fairly popular figures that's why they were presidential nominees um so it's a little bit aberrant in that sense but um but, 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 you know, but another thing I would say is it is pretty historically normal to see kind of a rut like this where presidents, you know, their popularity dips in kind of the middle of their term. You know, obviously it's very normal for their parties to do poorly in the midterms, which actually Biden's party did better than normal in the midterms. But, but you see, you know, same thing happened to much lesser extents, but, you know, to Bill Clinton and to Barack Obama, not as much to, to George W. Bush, you know, partially because of after 9-11, but you saw, um, fairly large factors in their party kind of saying, you know, maybe we should consider someone else. It's definitely very historically common for people to start saying, maybe we should consider someone else for the vice presidency, um, which you see a lot of Democrats talking about now. That's not happened since 1976, um, but it's more common that a vice presidential nominee gets traded out um, that hasn't happened in many decades than a presidential nominee. But, but you know, you've seen primary challenges in the past. You know, Biden would not be the first. You know, you know Jimmy Carter had Ted Kennedy um, George H.W. Bush and Pat Buchanan, you know, th- there's a long history of that. And um, frankly, if anything, the historical abnormality here is that President Biden, for his proof ratings, does not have a more serious primary challenger. That would be kind of the expectation for a president this unpopular. And we've seen that in several elections where when the numbers are looking like this, um, someone usually a much bigger party heavyweight than, say, a Dean Phillips. You know, you had Ted mm-hmm. Kennedy, who was obviously um, the, the brother of a, of a former president, kind of a, a, an icon within the party. He ran against a Kennedy, or he ran against Jimmy Carter and lost, but then Jimmy Carter lost um, in the general election. So you've seen things like that play out. And so, yeah, it's, it's perhaps a little bit historically uncommon, but I think just speaks to how tribalized you know, the parties are now and just kind of so quick to coalesce behind one person and so unwilling to kind of do anything that might threaten their party's hold in the White House that you don't see anything um, near the same kind of primary challenge up against Biden. And do you see a future where those approval ratings will rise above the 40-50 mark? What will that look like? I think it's highly unlikely. I mean, I think you, know, you saw this you, you saw this during the Trump administration and you see now in the Biden administration. And, you know, both of them, you know, have had their share of legislative successes and both of them have had their share of, you know, kind of big crises and big failures. Um, but really, I mean, Trump certainly, I mean, his approval rating, if you go back to you know, the, the like 1990s, you know, when, when he was you know, just a, kind of when he was like kind of a celebrity and kind of real estate figure and later a TV figure, pretty much exactly since then, his polling has remained remarkably consistent over decades of kind of the exact same number of Americans um, remaining very fond of him and the rest not. 
Um, Biden started out, you know, his presidency kind of as his traditional, kind of this honeymoon phase, which was just dashed after, you know, the very chaotic Afghanistan withdrawal, where his approval rating kind of plunged. At this point, it's hard to imagine what could make them recover. I mean, you know, in the time since, he's had a string of, you know, legislative successes. Again, he's also had, um, you know, a lot of difficulties around inflation, other issues, and, you know, nothing has changed them. And so I think that's just kind of the era we're in now. And, and they're almost just become, they've become, I think, a pretty flawed proxy at this point for um, what's going to happen in an election. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, you saw in the 2022 midterms, Joe Biden's approval rating was so low, generally presidential approval rating seen as a good proxy for how a party will do in the midterms, um, and, and it just wasn't. And so really, at this point, we saw it in 2016 and 2020, the kind of most interesting group to watch are the people that disapprove of both candidates. Um, and it's that kind of group that seems to kind of held the keys to the White House in 2016. They went for Trump. In 2020, they went for Biden. In 2024, we'll see. Um, but it's almost, it's, it's that approval rating doesn't matter as much. It's almost just, it's, it's the kind of disapprove, disapprove kind of voters who um, hold, hold a lot of sway. Sure, and we have a tradition here on the fly where we end every interview with a lightning round. We have quick questions and hopefully quick answers. So to start with, what is the most interesting political event you've ever attended? Most interesting political event I've ever attended. I, I will say covering. Uh, well, I'll, I'll say this: in the in the in the Trump White House, I covered the kind of coronavirus super spreader event with Amy Coney Barrett when she was announced the Supreme Court nominee. I did not catch COVID from it, but that's a pretty interesting thing to to have attended. Um. Okay. Uh, which political commentator do you admire most? Hmm. That's a good question. Um. I. Huh. Um. I've been. I'll say Jake Tapper, CNN. I, I, I like him a lot. And finally, what's your most fre- frequently visited website for staying up to date with political news? Um, honestly, and I'm not proud of this, but, but it's probably Twitter. <laughs> I would have guessed that. I feel like that, yeah. <laughs> with most political commentators, it's Twitter, right? Yeah, you can I, get so many. Not proud of it, but it's <laughs> okay. Uh, well, Gabe, thank you so much for joining us on the fly. Everyone go subscribe to his newsletter, Wake Up to Politics. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Fly. You can find us on social media at The Fly Georgetown. If you enjoyed our conversation, make sure to subscribe to The Fly and leave a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. Our researchers are Kenneth Jackson, Julian Zeitlinger, Abigail Asadi, and Chase Dobson. Our communications team is Andrea Smith, Austin Culpepper, Darius Wagner, and Sarah Sverdlov. Our production team is Will Hayes and David Grice. Original theme music is composed by Aidan Eng and Bella Carlucci. And I'm Fiona Gallagher, Managing Director of the Pod. The Fly is brought to you by the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public Service and is made possible by the McCourt School of Public Policy. Thanks so much for listening and fly with you soon. <laughs>